Chapter Six of Creechy. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arlene Stebbins. Creechy by Susan Warner. Chapter Six. Creechy at Dinner. To them, life was a simple art of duties to be done, a game where each man took his part, a race where all must run. A battle whose great scheme and scope they little cared to know. Content as men at arms to cope with each his fronting foe. Milne. On so great and uncommon an occasion as Mr. Ringan's giving a dinner party, the disused front parlour was opened and set in order. The women folks, as he called them, wanting the whole back part of the house for their operations. So when the visitors arrived, in good time, they were ushered into a large, square, bare-looking room, a strong contrast even to their dining-room, at the pool which, which gave them nothing of the welcome of the pleasant farmhouse kitchen, and where nothing of the comfort of the kitchen found its way, but a very strong smell of roast pig. There was the cheerless air of a place where nobody lives or thinks of living. The very chairs looked as if they had made up their minds to be forsaken for a term of months, it was impossible to imagine that a cheerful supper had ever been laid upon the stiff, cold-looking table that stood with its leaves down so primly against the wall. All that a blazing fire could do to make amends for deficiencies it did, but the wintry wind that swept round the house shook the paper window-shades in a remorseless way, and the utmost efforts of said fire could not prevent it from coming in and giving disagreeable impertinent whispers at the ears of everybody. Mr. Ringan's welcome, however, was and would have been the same thing anywhere. Genial, frank, and dignified, neither he nor it could be changed by circumstances. Mr. Carleton admired anew, as he came forward, the fine presence and noble look of his old host, a look that it was plain had never needed to seek the ground, a brow that in large or small things had never been crossed by a shadow of shame and to a discerning eye the face was not a surer index of a lofty than of a peaceful and pure mind, too peace-loving and pure, perhaps, for the best good of his affairs in the conflict with a selfish and unscrupulous world. At least now, in the time of his old age and infirmity, in former days his straightforward wisdom, backed by an indomitable courage and strength, had made Mr. Ringan no safe subject for either braving or overreaching. Fleda's keen-sighted affection was heartily gratified by the manner in which her grandfather was greeted by at least one of his guests, and that the one about whose opinion she cared the most. Mr. Carleton seemed as little sensible of the cold room as Mr. Ringan himself. Fleda felt sure that her grandfather was appreciated, and she would have sat delightedly listening to what the one and the other were presently saying, if she had not taken notice that her cousin looked astray. He was eyeing the fire with a profound air, and she fancied he thought it poor amusement. Little as Fleda in secret really cared about that, with an instant sacrifice of her own pleasure she quietly changed her position for one from which she could more readily bring to bear upon Mr. Rossiter's distraction the very light artillery of her conversation, and attacked him on the subject of the game he had brought home. Her motive and her manner both must have been lost upon the young gentleman. He forthwith set about amusing himself in a way his little entertainer had not counted upon, namely with giving a chase to her wits, partly to pass away the time, and partly to gratify his curiosity, as he said, to see what Fleda was made of. 
by a curious system of involved, startling, or absurd questions, he endeavoured to puzzle or confound or entrap her. Fleda, however, steadily presented a grave front to the enemy, and would every now and then surprise him with an unexpected turn or clever doubling, and sometimes, when he thought he had her in a corner, jump over the fence and laugh at him from the other side. Mr. Rossiter's respect for his little adversary gradually increased, and finding that she had rather the best of the game, he at last gave it up, just as Mr. Ringan was asking Mr. Carleton if he was a judge of stock. Mr. Carleton saying with a smile nobody hoped Mr. Ringan would give him his first lesson, the old gentleman immediately arose with that alacrity of manner he always wore when he had a visitor that pleased him, and taking his hat and cane led the way out, choosing, with a man's true carelessness of housewifery etiquette, the kitchen route of all others. Not even admonished by the sight of the bright Dutch oven before the fire that he was introducing his visitors somewhat too early to the pig, he led the whole party through. Cynthia scuttling away in haste across the kitchen was something that must not be seen, while Aunt Miriam looked out at the company through the crack of the pantry door, at which Fleda ventured a sly glance of intelligence. It was a fine, though a windy and cold afternoon. The lights and shadows were driving across the broad upland and meadows. "'This is fine, arable country,' remarked Mr. Carleton. "'Capital, sir, capital for many miles round, if we were not so far from a market. I was one of the first that broke ground in this township, one of the very first settlers. I've seen the rough and the smooth of it, and I never had but one mind about it from the first. All this, as far as you can see, I cleared myself, most of it with my own hand. That recollection must attach you strongly to the place, I should think, sir. Hmm, perhaps I cared too much for it, he replied, for it is taken away from me. Well, it don't matter now. Is it not yours? No, sir. It was mine, a great many years, but I was obliged to part with it two years ago to a scoundrel of a fellow, Mr. Gowan up here. He got an advantage over me. I can't take care of myself any more as I used to do, and I don't find that other people deal by me just as I could wish. He was silent for a moment, and then went on. Yes, sir, when I first set myself down here, or a little further that way my first house was, a pretty rough house, too, there want two settlers beside within something like ten miles around. I've seen the whole of it cleared from the cutting of the first forest trees till this day. You have seen the nation itself spring up within that time, remarked his guest. Not exactly. That question of our nationality was settled a little before I came here. I was born rather too late to see the whole of that play. I saw the best of it, though. Boys were men in those days. My father was in the thick of it from beginning to end. In the army, was he? Oh, yes, sir. He and every child that wasn't a girl. There wasn't a man of the name that wa'n't on the right side. I was in the army myself when I was fifteen. I was nothing but a fifer, but I tell you, sir, there wasn't a general officer in the country that played his part with a prouder heart than I did mine. And what was the general spirit of the ranks? Not altogether, replied the old gentleman, passing his hand several times abstractedly over his white hair, a favorite gesture with him. Not exactly that. There was a good deal of mixture of different materials, especially in this state, and where the feeling wasn't pretty strong it was no wonder if it got tired out. But the real stuff, the true Yankee blood, was pretty firm. Aye, and some of the rest. There was a good deal to try men in those days. 
"'Sir, I've seen many a time when I had nothing to dine upon but my fife, "'and it was more than that could do to keep me from feeling very empty.' "'But was this a common case? Did this happen often?' said Mr. Carleton. "'Pretty often, pretty often sometimes,' answered the old gentleman. "'Things were very much out of order, you see, and in some parts of the country "'it was almost impossible to get the supplies the men needed. "'Nothing would have kept them together, nothing under heaven.' but the love and confidence they had in one name. Their love of right and independence wouldn't have been strong enough, and besides, a good many of them got disheartened. A hungry stomach is a pretty stout auger against abstract questions. I have seen my father crying like a child for the wants and sufferings he was obliged to see and couldn't relieve. "'And then you used to relieve yourselves, Grandpa,' said Fleda. "'How was that, Fairy?' Fleda looked at her grandfather, who gave a little preparatory laugh, and passed his hand over his head again. "'Why, yes,' said he. "'We used to think the Tories, King George's men, you know, were fair game, and when we happened to be in the neighbourhood of some of them that we knew were going to give all the help they could to the enemy, we used to let them cook our dinners for us once in a while.' "'How did you manage that, sir?' "'Why, they used to have little bake-ovens to cook their meats and so on, standing some way out from the house.' Did you never see one of them? Raised on four little heaps of stone, the bottom of the oven is one large flat stone, and the arch built over it. They look like a great beehive. Well, we used to watch, till we saw the good woman of the house get her oven cleverly heated, and put in her batch of bread, or her meat pie, or her pumpkin and apple pies, whichever it was. There didn't any of them come much amiss, and when we guessed they were pretty nigh done, three or four of us would creep in and whip off the whole, oven and all, to a safe place. I tell you, said he with a knowing nod of his head at the laughing Fleda, those were first-rate pies. And then did you put the oven back again afterwards, Grandpa? I guess not often, dear, replied the old gentleman. What do you think of such lawless proceedings, Miss Fleda? said Mr. Carleton, laughing at or with her. Oh, I like it, said Fleda. "'You liked those pies all the better, didn't you, Grandpa, "'because you had got them from the Tories?' "'That we did. "'If we hadn't got them, maybe King George's men would, in some shape. "'But we weren't always so lucky as to get a hold of an oven full. "'I remember one time several of us had been out on a foraging expedition. "'There, sir, what do you think of that for a two-and-a-half-year-old?' "'They had come up with the chief favourite of his barnyard, "'a fine, deep-coloured Devon bull.' "'I don't know what one might see in Devonshire,' he remarked pleasantly, "'but I know this country can't show the like of him.' A discussion followed of the various beauties and excellencies of the animal, a discussion in which Mr. Carleton certainly took little part, while Mr. Ringan descanted enthusiastically upon hide and brisket and bone, and Rossiter stood in an abstraction. It might be scornful, it might be mazed. Little Fleda quietly listening and looking at the beautiful creature— which, from being such a treasure to her grandfather, was in a sort one to her. More than half understood them all, but Mr. Ringan was too well satisfied with the attention of one of his guests to miss that of the other. "'That fellow doesn't look as if he had ever known short commons,' was Rossiter's single remark as they turned away. "'You did not give us the result of your foraging expedition, sir,' said Mr. Carleton, in a different manner. "'Do, Grandpa,' said Fleda softly. "'Ha! Oh, it's not worth telling,' said the old gentleman, looking gratified. 
Fleda has heard my stories till she knows them by heart. She could tell it as well herself. What was it? About the pig? We'd been out several of us one afternoon to try and get up a supper, or a dinner, for we had had none, and we caught a pig. It happened that I was the only one of the party that had a cloak, and so the pig was given to me to carry home, because I could hide it the best. Well, sir, we were coming home, and had our mouths set for a prime supper, and just when we were within a few rods of our shanty, who should come along but our captain? My heart sank, as it never has done, at the thought of a supper before or since, I believe. I held my cloak together as well as I could, and kept myself back a little, so that if the pig showed a cloven foot behind me, the captain might not see it. But I almost gave all up for lost when I saw the captain going into the hut with us. There was a kind of rude bedstead standing there, and I set myself down on the side of it, and gently worked and eased my pig off under my cloak till I got him to roll down behind the bed. I knew, said Mr. Ringan, laughing, I knew by the captain's eye as well as I knew anything that he smelled a rat. But he kept our counsel as well as his own, and when he was gone we took the pig out into the woods behind the shanty and roasted him finely, and we sent and asked Captain Sears to supper, and he came and helped us eat the pig with a great deal of appetite, and never asked no questions how we came by him. "'I wonder your stout-heartedness did not fail in the course of so long a time,' said Mr. Carleton. "'Never, sir,' said the old man. "'I never doubted for a moment what the end would be.' My father never doubted for a moment. We trusted in God and in Washington. Did you see actual service yourself? No, sir, I never did. I wish I had. I should have liked to have had the honor of striking one blow at the rascals. However, they were hit pretty well. I ought to be contented. My father saw enough of fighting. He was colonel of a regiment. He was at the affair of Bourgogne. That gave us a lift in good time. What rejoicing there was everywhere when that news came! I could have fifed all day upon an empty stomach and felt satisfied. People reckoned everywhere that the matter was settled when that great piece of good fortune was given us. And so it was, wasn't it, dear? said the old gentleman with one of those fond, pleased, sympathetic looks to Fleda, with which he often brought up what he was saying. General Gates commanded there? said Mr. Carleton. Yes, sir. Gates was a poor stick. I never thought much of him. That fellow Arnold distinguished himself in the actions before Bourgogne's surrender. He fought like a brave man. It seems strange that so mean a scamp should have had so much blood in him. "'Why are great fighters generally good men, Grandpa?' said Fleda. "'Not exactly, dear,' replied her grandfather. "'But such little-minded rascality is not just the vice one would expect to find in a gallant soldier.' "'Those were times that made men,' said Mr. Carleton musingly. "'Yes,' answered the old gentleman gravely. "'They were times that called for men, and God raised them up. "'But Washington was the soul of the country, sir.' "'Well, the time made him,' said Mr. Carleton. "'I beg your pardon,' said the old gentleman, with a very decided little turn of his head. "'But I think he made the time. "'I don't know what it would have been, sir, or what it would have come to but for him. "'After all, it is rather that the things which try people show what is in them.' I hope there are men enough in the country yet, though they haven't as good a chance to show what they are. Either way, said his guest, smiling, it is a happiness, Mr. Ringan, to have lived at a time when there was something worth living for. Well, I don't know, said the old gentleman. Those times would make the prettiest figure in a story or romance, I suppose, but I've tried both, and on the whole, 
said he with another of his looks at Fleda, I think I like these times the best. Fleda smiled her acquiescence. His guest could not help thinking to himself that however pacific might be Mr. Ringan's temper, no man in those days that tried men could have brought to the issue more stern inflexibility and gallant fortitude of bearing. His frame bore evidence of great personal strength, and his eye, with all its mildness, had an unflinching dignity that could never have quailed before danger or duty. And now, while he was recalling with great animation and pleasure the scenes of his more active life, and his blue eye was shining with the fire of other days, his manner had the self-possession and quiet sedateness of triumph that bespeak a man always more ready to do than to say. Perhaps the contemplation of the noble Roman-like old figure before him did not tend to lessen the feeling, even the sigh of regret with which the young man said, "'There was something then for a man to do.' "'There is always that,' said the old gentleman quietly. "'God has given every man his work to do, and taint difficult for him to find out what. No man is put here to be idle.' "'But,' said his companion, with a look in which not a little haughty reserve was mingled with a desire to speak out his thoughts, "'half the world are busy about humdrum concerns, and the other half doing nothing, or worse.' "'I don't know about that,' said Mr. Ringan. "'That depends upon the way you take things. "'Tain't always the men that make the most noise "'that are the most good in the world. "'Humdrum affairs needn't be humdrum in the doing of them. "'It is my maxim,' said the old gentleman, "'looking at his companion with a singularly open, pleasant smile, "'that a man may be great about almost anything, "'chopping wood if he happens to be in that line. "'I used to go upon that plan, sir.' Whatever I have set my hand to do, I have done it as well as I knew how to. And if you follow that rule out, you'll not be idle nor humdrum neither. Many's the time that I have mowed what would be a day's work for another man, before breakfast. Rossiter's smile was not meant to be seen, but Mr. Carleton's, to the credit of his politeness and his understanding both, was frank as the old gentleman's own. As he answered with a good-humoured shake of his head, I can readily believe it, sir, and honour both your maxim and your practice, but I am not exactly in that line. "'Why don't you try the army?' said Mr. Ringan, with a look of interest. "'There is not a cause worth fighting for,' said the young man, his brow changing again. "'It is only to add weight to the oppressor's hand, or throw away a life in the vain endeavour to avert it. I will do neither.' "'But all the world is open before such a young man as you,' said Mr. Ringan. "'A large world,' said Mr. Carleton, with his former mixture of expression. "'But there isn't much in it.' "'Politics?' said Mr. Ringan. "'It is to lose oneself in a seething pot, where the scum is the most apparent thing.' "'But there is society,' said Rossiter. "'Nothing better or more noble than the succession of motes that flit through a sunbeam into oblivion.' "'Well, why not then sit down quietly on one's estates and enjoy them, one who has enough? "'And be a worm in the heart of an apple.' "'Well, then,' said Rossiter, laughing, though not knowing exactly how far he might venture, "'there is nothing left for you, as I don't suppose you would take to any of the learned professions, "'but to strike out some new path for yourself, "'hit upon some grand invention for benefiting the human race and distinguishing your own name at once.' 
But while he spoke his companion's face had gone back to its usual look of imperturbable coolness. The dark eye was even haughtily unmoved till it met Fleda's inquiring and somewhat anxious glance. He smiled. "'The nearest approach I ever made to that,' said he, "'was when I went chestnutting the other day. "'Can't you find some more work for me, Fairy?' Taking Fleda's hand with his wonted graceful lightness of manner, he walked on with her, leaving the other two to follow together. "'You would like to know, perhaps,' observed Mr. Rossiter in a rather low tone, "'that Mr. Carleton is an Englishman.' "'Aye, aye,' said Mr. Ringan. "'An Englishman, is he? Well, sir, what is it that I would like to know?' "'That,' said Rossiter, "'I would have told you before, if I could.' I supposed you might not choose to speak quite so freely, perhaps, on American affairs before him. "'I haven't two ways of speaking, sir, on anything,' said the old gentleman, a little dryly. "'Is your friend very tender on that chapter?' "'Oh, not that I know of at all,' said Rossiter. "'But you know there is a great deal of feeling still among the English about it. They have never forgiven us heartily for whipping them. And I know Carleton is related to the nobility and all that, you know, so I thought—' "'Ah, well,' said the old gentleman, "'we don't know much about nobility and such gimcracks in this country. "'I'm not much of a courtier. "'I'm pretty much accustomed to speak my mind as I think it. "'He's wealthy, I suppose.' "'He's more than that, sir. "'Enormous estates. "'He's the finest fellow in the world. "'One of the first young men in England.' "'You have been there yourself, and no,' said Mr. Ringan, glancing at his companion. "'I have not, sir. "'Others have told me that do.' "'Ah, well,' said Mr. Ringan placidly, "'we shan't quarrel, I guess. "'What did he come out here for, eh?' "'Only to amuse himself. "'They are going back again in a few weeks, "'and I intend to accompany them to join my mother in Paris. "'Will my little cousin be of the party?' "'They were sauntering along towards the house. "'A loud calling of her name the minute before "'had summoned Fleda thither at the top of her speed, "'and Mr. Carleton turned to repeat the same question.' The old gentleman stopped, and, striking his stick two or three times against the ground, looked sorrowfully undetermined. "'Well, I don't know,' he said at last. "'It's a pretty hard matter. She'd break her heart about it, I suppose.' "'I dare urge nothing, sir,' said Mr. Carleton. "'I will only assure you that if you entrust your treasure to us, she shall be cherished as you would wish, till we place her in the hands of her aunt.' "'I know that, sir. I do not doubt it,' said Mr. Ringan. "'I'll tell you by and by what I conclude upon,' he said, with evident relief of manner, as Fleda came bounding back to them. "'Mr. Rossiter, have you made your peace with Fleda?' "'I was not aware that I had any to make, sir,' replied the young gentleman. "'I will do it with pleasure if my little cousin will tell me how. But she looks as if she needed enlightening as much as myself.' "'She has something against you, I can tell you.' said the old gentleman, looking amused, and speaking as if Fleda were a curious little piece of human mechanism which could hear its performances talked of with all the insensibility of any other toy. She gives it as her judgment that Mr. Carleton is the most of a gentleman, because he keeps his promise. "'Oh, Grandpa!' Poor Fleda's cheek was hot with a distressful blush. Rossiter coloured with anger. Mr. Carleton's smile had a very different expression. "'If Fleda will have the goodness to recollect,' said Rossiter, "'I cannot be charged with breaking a promise, for I made none.' "'But Mr. Carleton did,' said Fleda. "'She is right, Mr. Rossiter, she is right,' 
said that gentleman. A fallacy might as well elude ethereal sphere as the sense of a pure spirit. There is no need of written codes. Make your apologies, man, and confess yourself in the wrong. Pooh, pooh, said the old gentleman. She don't take it very much to heart. I guess I ought to be the one to make apologies, he added, looking at Fleda's face. But Fleda commanded herself with difficulty and announced that dinner was ready. Mr. Rossiter tells me, Mr. Carleton, you are an Englishman said his host. I have some notion of that's passing through my head before, but somehow I had entirely lost sight of it when I was speaking so freely to you a little while ago about our national quarrel. I know some of your countrymen owe us a grudge yet. Not I, I assure you, said the young Englishman. I am ashamed of them for it. I congratulate you on being Washington's countryman, and a sharer in his grand struggle for the right against the wrong." Mr. Ringan shook his guest's hand, looking very much pleased, and having by this time arrived at the house, the young gentlemen were formally introduced at once to the kitchen, their dinner, and Aunt Miriam. It is not too much to say that the entertainment gave perfect satisfaction to everybody, better fate than attends most entertainments. Even Mr. Rossiter's ruffled spirit felt the soothing influence of good cheer, to which he happened to be peculiarly sensible and came back to its average condition of amenity. Doubtless that was a most informal table, spread according to no rules that for many generations at least have been known in the refined world, an anomaly in the eyes of certainly one of the company. Yet the board had a character of its own, very far removed from vulgarity, and suiting remarkably well with the condition and demeanour of those who presided over it, a comfortable, well-to-do, substantial look, that could afford to dispense with minor graces, a self-respect that was not afraid of criticism. Aunt Miriam's successful efforts deserved to be celebrated. In the middle of the table the polished amber of the pig's arched back elevated itself, a striking object, but worthy of the place he filled as the honours paid him by everybody abundantly testified. Aunt Miriam had sent down a basket of her own bread, made out of the new flour, brown and white, both as sweet and fine as it is possible for bread to be. The piled-up slices were really beautiful. The superb butter had come from Aunt Miriam's dairy, too, for on such an occasion she would not trust to the very doubtful excellence of Miss Cynthia's doings. Every spare place on the table was filled with dishes of potatoes and pickles and sweetmeats that left nothing to be desired in their respective kinds. The cake was a delicious presentiment of the finest of material, and the pies—pumpkin pies such as only Aunt Miriam could make—rich compounds of everything but pumpkin, with enough of that to give them a name. Fleda smiled to think how pleased Aunt Miriam must secretly be to see the homage paid her through them. And most happily Mrs. Plumfield had discovered that the last tea Mr. Ringan had brought from the little Queechy store was not very good, and there was no time to send up on the hill for more so she made coffee. Verily, it was not mocha, but the thick yellow cream with which the cups were filled readily made up the difference. The most curious palate found no want. Everybody was in a high state of satisfaction, even to Miss Cynthia Gall, who, having some lurking suspicion that Mrs. Plumfield might design to cut her out of her post of tea-making, had slipped herself into her usual chair behind the tea-tray, before anybody else was ready to sit down. No one at table bestowed a thought upon Miss Cynthia, but as she thought of nothing else she may be said to have had her fair share of attention. The most unqualified satisfaction, however, was no doubt little Fleda's. 
forgetting with a child's happy readiness the fears and doubts which had lately troubled her she was full of the present enjoying with a most unselfish enjoyment everything that pleased anybody else she was glad that the supper was a fine one and so approved because it was her grandfather's hospitality and her aunt miriam's housekeeping little beside was her care for pies or coffee she saw with secret glee the expression of both her aunt's and mr ringan's face partly from pure sympathy and partly because as she knew the cause of it was mr carleton whom privately fleda liked very much and after all perhaps he had directly more to do with her enjoyment than all the other causes together certainly that was true of him with respect to the rest of the dinner-table none at that dinner-table had ever seen the like with all the graceful charm of manner with which he would have delighted a courtly circle he came out from his reserve and was brilliant gay sensible entertaining and witty to a degree that assuredly has very rarely been thrown away upon an old farmer in the country and his unpolite sister they appreciated him though as well as any courtly circle could have done and he knew it in aunt miriam's strong sensible face when not full of some hospitable care he could see the reflection of every play of his own the grave practical eye twinkled and brightened giving a ready answer to every turn of sense of humour in which he was saying mr ringan as much of a child for the moment as fleda herself had lost everything disagreeable and was in the full genial enjoyment of talk rather listening than talking with his cheeks in a perpetual dimple of gratification and a low laugh of hearty amusement now and then rewarding the conversational and kind efforts of his guest with a complete triumph even the subtle charm which they could not quite recognize wrought fascination miss cynthia declared afterwards half admiring and half vexed that he spoiled her supper for she forgot to think how it tasted rossiter his good humour was entirely restored but whether even mr carleton's power could have achieved that without the perfect seasoning of the pig and the smooth persuasion of the richly creamed coffee it may perhaps be doubted he stared mentally for he had never known his friend condescend to bring himself out in the same manner before and he wondered what he could see in the present occasion to make it worth while but mr carleton did not think his efforts thrown away he understood and admired his fine old host and hostess and with all their ignorance of conventionalities and absence of what is called polish of manner he could enjoy the sterling sense the good feeling the true hearty hospitality and the dignified courtesy which both of them showed no matter of the outside this was in the grain if mind had lacked much opportunity it had also made good use of a little his host mr carleton found had been a great reader was well acquainted with history and a very intelligent reasoner upon it and both he and his sister showed a strong and quick aptitude for intellectual subjects of conversation no doubt aunt miriam's courtesy had not been taught by a dancing-master and her brown satin gown had seen many a fashion come and go since it was made but a lady was in both and while rossiter covertly smiled mr carleton paid his sincere respect where he felt it was due little fleda's quick eye hardly saw but more than half felt the difference mr carleton had no more eager listener now than she and perhaps none whose unaffected interest and sympathy gave him more pleasure when they arose from the table mr ringan would not be insinuated into the cold front room again no no said he what's the matter the table push the table back and let it take care of itself 
"'Come, gentlemen, sit down, draw up your chairs round the fire, and a fig for ceremony. "'Comfort, Sister Miriam, against politeness any day in the year. "'Don't you say so, too, Fairy? Come here by me.' "'Miss Fleda,' said Mr. Carleton, "'will you take a ride with me to Montpool to-morrow? "'I should like to make you acquainted with my mother.' Fleda coloured and looked at her grandfather. "'What do you say, dearie?' he inquired fondly. "'Will you go?' "'I believe, sir, your proposal will prove a very acceptable one. "'You will go, won't you, Fleda?' Fleda would very much rather not, but she was always exceedingly afraid of hurting people's feelings. She could not bear that Mr. Carleton should think she disliked to go with him, so she answered yes in her usual sober manner. Just then the door opened, and a man unceremoniously walked in, his entrance immediately following a little sullen knock that had made a mockery of asking permission an ill-looking man in the worst sense, his face being a mixture of cunning, meanness, and insolence. He shut the door and came in with a slow, leisurely step into the middle of the room, without speaking a word. Mr. Carleton saw the blank change in Fleda's face. She knew him. "'Do you wish to see me, Mr. McGowan?' said Mr. Ringan, not without something of the same change. "'I guess I ha'n't come here for nothing,' was the gruff retort. "'Wouldn't another time answer as well?' "'I don't mean to find you here another time,' said the man, chuckling. "'I have given you notice to quit, and now I have come to tell you you'll clear out. I ain't a-going to be kept out of my own property for ever. If I can't get my money from you, Elziva Ringan, I'll see you don't get no more of it in your hands.' "'Very well, sir,' said the old gentleman. "'You have said all that is necessary.' "'You have got to hear a little more, though,' returned the other. I've an idea there's satisfaction in speaking one's mind. I'll have that much out of you. Mr. Ringan, a man hadn't oughtn't to make an agreement to pay what he doesn't mean to pay, and what he has made an agreement to pay he ought to meet and be up to, if he has sold his soul for it. You call yourself a Christian, do you, to stay in another man's house, month after month, when you know you ha'n't got the means to give him the rent for it? That's what I call stealing, and it's what I'd live in the county house before I'd demean myself to do, and so ought you. "'Well, well, neighbor,' said Mr. Ringan, with patient dignity, "'it's no use calling names. "'You know as well as I do how this all came about. "'I hoped to be able to pay you, "'but I haven't been able to make it out without having more time.' "'Time,' said the other, "'time to cheat me out of a little more house-room. "'If I was a-going to live on charity, Mr. Ringan, "'I'd come out and say so, "'and not put my hand in a man's pocket this way. "'You'll quit the house by the day after to-morrow, "'or if you don't, I'll let you hear a little more of me "'that you won't like.' He stalked out, shutting the door after him with a bang. Mr. Carleton had quitted the room a moment before him. Nobody moved or spoke at first. When the man was gone, except Miss Cynthia, who, as she was taking something from the table to the pantry, remarked, probably for Mr. Rossiter's benefit, that Mr. Ringan had to have that man punished for something he did a few years ago when he was Justice of the Peace, and she guessed likely that was the reason he had a grudge against him ever since. Beyond this piece of dubious information nothing was said. Little Fleda stood beside her grandfather with a face of quiet distress, the tears silently running over her flushed cheeks, and her eyes fixed upon Mr. Ringan with a tender touching look of sympathy, most pure from self-recollection. Mr. Carleton presently came in to take leave of the disturbed family. The old gentleman rose and returned his shake of the hand with even a degree more than usual of his manly dignity or Mr. Carleton thought so. 
"'Good day to you, sir,' he said heartily. "'We have had a great deal of pleasure in your society, and I shall always be very happy to see you, wherever I am.' And then, following him to the door, and wringing his hand with a force he was not at all aware of, the old gentleman added in a lower tone, "'I shall let her go with you.' Mr. Carleton read his whole story in the stern self-command of brow, and the slight convulsion of feature which all the self-command could not prevent. He returned warmly the grasp of the hand, answering merely, "'I will see you again.' Fleda wound her arms round her grandfather's neck when they were gone, and did her best to comfort him, assuring him that they would be just as happy somewhere else, and that Miriam earnestly proffered her own home. But Fleda knew that her grandfather was not comforted. He stroked her head with the same look of stern gravity and troubled emotion which had grieved her so much the other day. She could not win him to a smile, and went to bed at last, feeling desolate. She had no heart to look out at the night. The wind was sweeping by in wintry gusts, and Fleda cried herself to sleep, thinking how it would whistle round the dear old house, when their ears would not be there to hear it. End of chapter 6